I'd like to ask you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. This morning we come to the end of chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Please give your attention to God's holy and errant word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The movement goes by many different names, both here and around the world. Some call it the prosperity gospel. Some call it the word of faith movement, or the health and wealth movement, or the name it and claim it movement. It's had many different names teaching of that movement is not very popular in our theological circles, and sometimes we get so narrow in our focus, we don't realize how wildly popular this teaching is around our country and even in scarier ways around the world. If you've been living under a rock and don't know what this movement teaches, basically it's the idea that it's God's will that we be happy, healthy, and wealthy in this life, and that faith is something that we use like a force to change our lives and to bring these temporal blessings into our lives, and therefore the implication is, is if we go through any significant amount of suffering, it's due to a lack of faith. We're not exercising our faith sufficiently. Three of, the, three of the four largest churches in the United States of America would fall into this category of a prosperity gospel church. Three of the four top churches. The Trinity Broadcasting Network is a network that's on almost every cable system in the country. It is the sixth largest broadcasting network, bigger even than ABC in terms of its reach. And the predominant teaching on that cable network would generally fall into this category of health and wealth teaching. That network reaches 95% of American homes, and it's in 75 other countries. And if you really want to get a sense of the scope of this teaching and how much it's infected the church, talk to some missionaries overseas. It's one of the biggest obstacles that they face not so much opposition from unbelievers and other religions, but from 
people who profess to be Christians but promote this health and wealth teaching. 61% of American Christians, when surveyed, 61% of American Christians believe that it's God's will for believers to live in good health and material prosperity in this life. Probably one of the most uh, famous preachers in this movement, although he is very moderate, uh, not, not in the radical fringe, but very moderate, would be Joel Osteen. has a congregation of over 40,000 people. This is a quote from one of his books. He says, You were born to win. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. If you develop an image of victory, success, health, abundance, joy, peace, and happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you. And then we read a passage like we read this morning. And the last verse hits like a ton of bricks. Where Peter, the Apostle Peter, says that we who suffer, suffer according to God's will. That's a hard statement. It's harder for many of you sitting out there listening than it is for me because some of you are suffering a lot more than I am. But that's what the Scriptures teach. That when we suffer, we suffer according to God's will. We've been studying through this letter that Peter wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. As he has written to these churches, he has told them back in chapter 2, remember, he built them up, encouraged them, told them how in God's eyes they are the true spiritual temple of God. They are the holy priesthood. They are the chosen race and the holy nation, deeply loved by the God who redeemed them. And yet he has to prepare them for the fact that many of them, if not most of them, were suffering. And not just suffering in the normal way that we suffer, but suffering persecution. People were attacking them. People were taking away their possessions. People were putting them in prison. People were even taking away some of their lives because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And so they're asking the question, why? How can this be if God loves us so much? If we are the focus of all His work in the universe, why do so many of us suffer so much? And the plain truth that Peter is trying to get across to the readers in his day, and the same thing he wants you to hear today, is that becoming a child of God, becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, is not going to make your outward life any easier. You're still going to suffer with all the other effects of the fall. You're still going to be hurt by other sinners. And you're still going to be damaged by your own sin. You're still going to have to deal with thorns and thistles and weeds. You're still going to be hit with sickness and depression and disasters. Just like everybody else in the world. But added to that, once you become a child of God, you're going to be put in the midst of a spiritual battle. And the forces of the flesh and the devil and the world are all going to be arrayed against you. And you're going to suffer. 
In some ways, if you're thinking only in terms of the blessings of this life, you're going to suffer more than you did when you were out swimming along with the flow of everybody else in this fallen world. C.S. Lewis had this great quote. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew that a bottle of port would do that for me. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. What Peter says here in this passage applies to all suffering in general, so don't be frustrated. Sometimes I'm mostly addressing any kind of suffering we go through in this fallen world, but just keep in mind as we go through this, The focal point of his teaching here deals with the kind of suffering that comes to those who take a stand publicly for Jesus Christ. Those who walk openly as disciples. You can avoid a lot of suffering as a Christian by keeping your faith very private, but that's not the kind of people he's talking to. He's talking to people that live publicly for the Lord. And that's the kind of suffering he has most primarily in mind, but everything he says here applies to any suffering that a child of God goes through in this life by the will of God. Any suffering. So why should we expect suffering? I think Peter gives us four reasons. You'll see them there in the bulletin. Four reasons why we should expect suffering as the norm in our life. The first reason is that, as Peter alludes to here, suffering is to be seen as normal to the Christian life. Doesn't sound that radical, but think about it. Do you really expect suffering to be a normal part of your life? In verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Every passage of Scripture communicates the idea That the journey of faith is a hard, narrow path. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16.33, In the world you will have tribulation. Paul told new believers in Acts 14 verse 22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, Scripture never exhorts us to seek suffering. Some believers, misguided believers, have thought that in the past. But that's not what the Scriptures tell us. We're not to seek out suffering. We're not to seek out persecution. But what the Scriptures do make clear to us is that we are to expect suffering. Suffering that's in the will of God. It's to be the norm in life. And I think that's a message that we need to wrestle with, even though in some parts of the world or in some parts of history, you wouldn't have to twist people's arm very much for believers to to understand that. But in this context, I think we need to have that underlined in our Bibles. That suffering is the norm for us as disciples of Christ in a fallen world. We need to understand that Suffering is not strange for the believer. That it's only in our American experience. Think about where we have lived in the context in which we've lived for the last 200 and some odd years. Where Christianity has had favored status in the culture up until recently. Where 
Christianity became kind of the mindset and the worldview, even if people didn't believe it sincerely, of the culture. What other periods of history, whatever place, what other places in history have we experienced the kind of freedom to follow Christ and to tell others about Christ that we've had here? What other places and times in history have we had the kind of prosperity to go along with that freedom to serve Christ? We are the unusual ones. We are the outliers in history. It's been great for a couple of centuries. I pray that it isn't what it appears to be coming to a close. But it's been very unusual. So we, more than any other people, I think, that have ever lived on the planet as disciples of Christ, need to hear that suffering is supposed to be the norm of the Christian life. Because we've been living the exception. And as a result, we grow up in this prosperous culture feeling that we have been born with an inalienable right to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And we feel like we've been cheated by society, or even worse, by God, if we're not. I was talking to somebody earlier this week who had spent some significant time in a cancer ward. And this woman was just telling me how much, you know, she'd been in these places before, but just spending day after day in a cancer ward will change your perspective on life and make you realize how unusually blessed we are here. I think that every time I go into a nursing home, not only does it change your perspective, but it also makes you realize how much in this society, because we're so driven to material, temporal prosperity, how easy it is for us to, what I would call, warehouse our suffering. Put it away somewhere, out of sight and out of mind, so that we don't have to think about it. Didn't used to be that way. People who went through suffering, we didn't put them away in institutions. We didn't put them away in homes. We didn't put them in a separate part of the hospital somewhere. They were living in the homes with the family. And we saw suffering firsthand, and death was much more of a reality for people historically than what we've had to deal with. Talking to Josh about his job a couple days ago, working in emergency situations and watching people die. We shelter ourselves from that. And we believe, as a result, the American mindset is that the whole purpose of life is to maximize pleasure and comfort and minimize pain. And I'm here to say this morning that's antithetical to the mindset of living in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We expect God to maximize our pleasure and we expect God to minimize our pain and we get angry and bitter when he doesn't. And if we pray, we pray that he'll take it away quickly so that we can get back to our pleasure. But Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange, it's the norm for the path of the disciples. Secondly, he says, we should expect to suffer because suffering is the way of Christ. It's the path that Christ took, and if we follow Christ, then we will walk in his footsteps. He says in verse 13, Peter says, Rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter really is talking about suffering as a high calling. And it's somehow sharing in Christ's sufferings. Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 29, For it has been granted to you, it's a gift to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And we've lost that in this easy, comfortable society, that suffering is a calling to walk as Christ walked. We suffer opposition when we live as public disciples of Christ because of our identity with Christ. And the way that the culture responds to the true biblical Christ, not the one of their own imagination, but the one that's really given to us by revelation in Scripture, the way that the culture responds to Christ, expect that culture to respond to you as well, if he's your identity, if you are following him, if you're seeking to be like him. And both Peter and Paul call that sharing in his sufferings. And what they're saying, and there's, there's a mystery here, and I don't fully understand this yet. But there is a sense that as Christ's disciples, as the church of Jesus Christ suffers, Christ continues to suffer. The New Testament teaches that. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, and talk about a leader in the church who suffered. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up. Listen to this phrase. This is a difficult phrase to to comprehend, to grasp. Because in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul understood that somehow as he suffered, and particularly as he suffered as a disciple of Christ, that he was completing or finishing up the work of suffering that Christ is called to do. That's the degree to which he was participating in the sufferings of Christ. Now, let me be very careful here to distinguish what Paul is saying about the sufferings of Christ from the sufferings of the cross. Because when Christ died on the cross, when he shed his blood as an atonement, as a sacrifice, as he died in our place for our sins, when he gave up his last breath, when he died, he said, it is finished. Nothing can be added to his work. Nothing needs to be added to his atoning work on the cross. That suffering. But what Paul and Peter are trying to say is that Christ continues to suffer as his church suffers. That's what it means to be in Christ. We are in him. He is in us. As we suffer, he suffers. And something is still lacking in the suffering of Christ. Not atonement. That's done. Once for all. Completed in the past. It's finished. But the suffering that is still lacking is the suffering of taking the gospel to the ends of the world. Remember what we said last week? Only one more thing needs to be done before Christ returns. That's why his return is imminent. And that one thing is that the gospel must be taken to the ends of the earth. And how is that gospel going to be taken to the ends of the earth? It's going to be as his people stand up publicly professing Christ taking on the flesh, the world, and the devil, and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as the church suffers in taking the gospel to the end of the earth, Christ is glorified, the kingdom is built, and his suffering is brought to completion. And one day it will be over. 
That's why Peter says, we share in Christ's suffering so that we may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Remember what Jesus said to Saul, who would soon become Paul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No. Why are you persecuting me? As the church suffers, Christ continues to suffer with the church, looking to complete his work. And our suffering has an important role in the completion of the plan and the purpose of God the Father. But there's a great promise. If we follow in the way of Christ, there's a promise in verse 14. Look at what it says there. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When it talks about the spirit resting upon either a person or a place, it's, it's, it's speaking of a special manifestation of the presence of God. What a promise that is. That when you suffer in faith for Christ, the promise is that the spirit of God rests upon you. There is a presence of God with you that is exceptional. That's unusual. The Spirit comforts and guards and guides us while we walk through the midst of the storm. That's the promise of God. And I would ask you, challenge yourself. As you've spent so much of your life trying to maximize your pleasure and minimize your pain, let me just ask you a very simple question. I've asked it before. During what periods of your life did you sense the presence of God most keenly? Was it during the most healthy and prosperous and successful times of your life in this world? Or was it during the hardest, darkest, most difficult times in your life? That's the promise of God. That in the valley, you see His glory more clearly. The third reason that Peter gives us for why we should expect suffering as the norm is because it's the way to Christ-likeness. There's so much scriptural teaching on this. And Peter alludes to it when he talks about judgment here. He says in verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And the judgment that he's talking about there is the discernment between the sheep and the goats, between the wheat and the tares. God is bringing judgment through suffering into his church to cause those who truly walk by faith to stand apart from those who truly live for this world or for the kingdom of darkness. In verse 12, Peter calls the suffering fiery trials. That word fiery is in the word. It's, It's the idea of a burning. Why? Because he's alluding to that refining process that he mentioned back in chapter 1. Let me take you back to chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. There, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, that's our mindset. When suffering enters into our lives, nobody seeks it. But when it comes by God's will, you understand that that's what God is intent. He is intending to refine you through the fiery trial, to burn away the dross and to leave the gold of your faith. That's his purpose. It's always his purpose. 
As John Piper says, when God leads you through suffering, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering by complaining about it, by seeking to avoid it, by running away from it, by medicating yourself out of it, by by drinking heavily to forget it. Don't waste your suffering. It's an opportunity for God to refine your faith. Jesus said to Peter, remember, and Peter must have had this in mind as he wrote these words. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. There's always that dual purpose when suffering comes. That's what the whole book of Job is about. There's always a dual purpose when you go through suffering. God has his purpose. Satan has his purpose. God's purpose is to refine your faith and to make you like Christ because that's the ideal of life. Satan's purpose is to destroy you. It's kind of like the difference between a murderer who cuts you in order to kill you and destroy you and a surgeon who cuts you in order to heal you. Same action, opposing purposes. Let me read to you one of my favorite quotes. When I want to talk to somebody or read somebody who, who can give me wisdom about what it means to suffer, I often go to Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny is a wonderful saint of God, paralyzed from the neck down, from the shoulders down since she was 17, been a quadriplegic and has been serving Christ, preaching his gospel, serving people in similar states of suffering throughout her life, Let me read this quote from her. And, you know, it has so much more credibility coming from her than from me. She says, My wise and sovereign God takes one form of evil, that is suffering, and he turns it on its head to defeat another form of evil, and that's my sin, my self-centeredness. God's an expert at doing this, and when I yield to his sovereign plan and I cling to the cross where every ugly thing is put to death, before I know it, my sin is sandblasted away, resulting in his image shining out of my soul, tested and refined, polished, a soul that glows with the glory of God. God wields suffering to break apart your rocks of resistance. Suffering is his chisel in his hand that chips away at your pride and your stiff-necked, stubborn rebellion and hurting and that hammering is not going to end until we become completely like Jesus, until we completely reflect the marvelous image of the precious Jesus Christ. You know, when I pray for the people in my life, when I pray for myself and other people in my life that are struggling with pride and rebellion and sin, I often pray for God to humble us. But you know what? When you pray for God to humble us, you know what you're praying for. Usually asking for pray, prayer, praying that God would cause you to suffer or cause your loved one to suffer because that's the most likely means he's going to use to teach you to be humble and dependent and to walk by faith. Peter says, if judgment begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Again, Peter tells us to keep our eyes on Christ and his return. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says that one day Christ is going to send fire and he's going to destroy all that is sinful and all that is tainted by sin in the entire universe. But really what Peter's saying here is that fire has already started. It's already come to the church. It's the fire of refinement now. As he refines his people. 
but it one day will be a fire of condemnation that destroys sin and sinners who are unrepentant. And so we should expect to suffer because that's Christ-likeness. And lastly, finally, we should expect to suffer because God knows that suffering shows where our treasure lies. Peter says in verse 19, Therefore those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And I say that has a future emphasis because the word entrust there in the Greek, it was used, it was a very specific word for placing your money or your precious valuables in a place of safekeeping. To deposit your valuables and your money in a place that's safe and secure. Now think about it, back in the first century, you didn't have banks. So if you wanted to deposit your belongings, things that were valuable to you in a safe place, you would take them to a family member or a neighbor that you deeply trusted. And the greater the degree of the integrity of your family member or your neighbor, the greater your security that your valuables be there when you came back to collect them. And so that's the, that's the idea behind this word of us entrusting our souls to our Creator. Our Creator and our Redeemer, who more should we trust than that? He is trustworthy. It's the same word, interestingly, that Jesus used on the cross when with His dying breath He said, Father, into Your hands I commit or I entrust My Spirit. That's how we can suffer joyfully. Because He is faithful. And His promises will be fulfilled. And our treasure is not in our health here. Our treasure is not in our possessions here. Our treasure is not in our career here. Our treasures are in heaven and they're secure under His care and protection. That's why the historic testimony of Christ's church, according to Hebrews 11, has always been that we are choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And that we are considering the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Or more simply, as Job said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Those who suffer according to the will of God are blessed. If we follow Christ, we must expect to suffer in this life. And not only accept it, we must embrace it. And not only must we embrace it, we must rejoice in it, not because suffering is good, not because it's pleasant, not because it's comfortable, but because of the way that our sovereign God is going to use it to make us what He wants us to be and to give us what He wants to give us. To rejoice in suffering is to draw close to Him, to make us like Him, and to further His cause, which is the Gospel. We can trust our Redeemer and our Creator. He will not give us more suffering than we can bear. He's promised it. And everything we endure has a great purpose. And when we suffer in faith, we will be greatly rewarded for all eternity. I want to share with you just as I close the words to one of my favorite modern praise songs. A song called Every Day. Just listen to the words of this. This was written a couple years ago. In your grace, you know where I walk. You know when I fall. You know all my ways. In your love, I know you allow what I cannot grasp to bring you praise. Thank you for the trials, for the fire, 
for the pain. Thank you for the strength, knowing you have ordained every day. Your great power is shown when I am weak. You help me to see your love in this place. Perfect peace is filling my mind and drawing my heart to praise you again. In my uncertainty, your word is all I need to know that you're with me every day. Thank you for the trials, for the fire, for the pain. Thank you for the strength, knowing you have ordained every day. I'm guessing you won't hear that in your local health and wealth church. But it's a biblical perspective on the Christian life. Let's all pray together for the grace to serve Christ and glorify Him in our suffering. Father, it's been hard for me to share your word with your people today, knowing that there are so many here that are going through such difficult trials. And Lord, we're not asking them to enjoy the suffering, but we're asking them to see your hand behind it, to see that you have ordained it for their good and for the growth of your kingdom. This is hard for us to accept, but we know that there's great joy and reward in understanding things from your perspective. Give us the faith that we need. In Christ's name, amen.